Hey, welcome again to Centennial Church. Uh, you should have some notes. Our uh, preacher this morning has some extensive notes around the seats. If you don't like paper, again, that's on our app. If you go to sermons and go to August 7, you can find the notes there uh, electronically and get that to you. So our uh, special guest this morning is a guy that's been in my life since I was four years old. Pastor Bruce has been my pastor since I was four years old. He baptized me when I was about 13 uh, years old. I think we have a picture of that somewhere. Uh, There it is. Uh, not in the Jordan River, but in a stinky lake, okay? Uh, baptized me when I was about 13. I did my first ministry internship at his church, Fellowship Bible Church at Tulsa. Uh, preached for the first time uh, as a 21-year-old in his pulpit. Uh, so deep history here and great respect and love uh, for Pastor Bruce. One thing, uh, Pastor Bruce wasn't, I told you a story last week about Bruce being an evil Knievel at a, an event at our church. I want to tell you another story this morning. Bruce was not actually at my wedding, however. Uh, he didn't perform my wedding ceremony. We had a small wedding, about 40 people in Alabama, Mobile. Uh, Bruce wasn't there, uh, but later that night on my wedding night, on my wedding night, at my hotel about 8.30, my cell phone starts ringing. And I'm like, who in the world is calling me on my wedding night at 8.30 in the evening. And of course I don't answer it, but later I check it and sure enough, it's Pastor Bruce. And this message is like a two and a half minute voicemail that I, I listen to. And it's like, hey Ross, Pastor Bruce here. Just, I don't know what you got going on. Just wanted to check in with you. I, it, Saturday night, I'm, I'm doing some prep for tomorrow morning for my teaching. Would really love, if you could call me back as soon as you get this, I could really use your help. I'm teaching tomorrow and it has a little bit to do with eschatology and the end times. And I'm kind of, I would really appreciate your insight into some of this stuff. I'm kind of nervous about it. So if you could please give me a call call back as soon as you can. I, I would love to hear from you. So uh, that's my pastor right there, okay? Evil Knievel, prankster, please welcome uh, Dr. Pastor Bruce Ewing. That was a good one. That was a good one. Uh, he shut his phone off or I would have stayed with it. <laughs> Thank you, Ross. Um, I'm privileged to have a special person here today and her husband. She served as my secretary in Tulsa for I don't know how many years, Fran and Clint. I want you to just welcome them. She's a very special guy. She's bailed me out on so many instances. And, and our music, this is incredible. And, and Jason is the Blake Shelton of the Christian faith. I just have to believe that. Isn't that guy good? Has Blake already gone? Can we have a picture of a very important person? What I'm teaching today is perhaps one of the most powerful passages of scripture you'll ever study that's going to directly affect Truett. It's going to directly affect Will. Would you mind, Dad, holding Will up for us? There's little Will. 
What would you say if I said that what we walk out of here today will affect Will for the rest of his life through eternity? Where's Brigham? Could you raise Brigham up? He's young. Did you catch that? Brigham's young. A little slow. And we have a number of women that are carrying about little future, eternally destined children at womb temperature right now, whose lives are largely dependent upon how well we grasp what I think is one of the most significant passages of all of Scripture. This isn't the passage I'm going to be using this morning, but I would like to read out of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests, now listen to this carefully, manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Ready for this? You hear the timpani beginning to roll? The guy's bringing the symbols out to Christ. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among Truett, Will, Brigham. Every person you're going to come in contact with this week, we are a fragrance aroma to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one, it's an aroma from death to death. It's a crossroads. To the other, an aroma from life to life. Who's adequate for such things? I don't know what your background is, where you've come from, where you're at in any station of your Christian experience right now, but let's pray that Holy Spirit will take the truth of His Word and rivet it into our conscience that when we walk out of here today, we're going to give that fragrant aroma, that magnetic aroma that will draw a person into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And as we do that, If there's anything in your life that would interfere with Holy Spirit talking to us today, would you just confess that? Just acknowledge it before Him. Thank God for His forgiveness. And would you ask also that the Lord would give us clarity and freedom to hear truth in a transformational way. Father, we thank you so much that we have your word, revelation of yourself and what you want to accomplish in our lives. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you're playing with Pokemon right now, ask him to take you to 2 Peter chapter 1, okay? All you guys that have this computer stuff on your iPhones, I tell you, I, I used to preach Sunday after Sunday and everybody had their iPhones out and I know that they were planning the schedule for the next week or something, I don't know, but I, I really like the, the, the printed word my, myself. This is, this is what's ordained of God. I don't know about the iPhone, but... Yeah. <laughs>
Let's read together out of 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at eight verses. We talked about the first four last week. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who received a faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his, boy, get a grip of this, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and knowledge through the true knowledge of uh, of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them we might become partakers of the divine nature of God having escaped the corruption is in the world by lust. Let me just talk about that passage for just a little bit, just by way of review. I know a couple of you were unable to be here. If I, if I read through that passage, one of the first things that really jumps out of me, the most attractive thing would be grace and peace. In a world of conflict, we want to experience God's grace and peace. And so often that's what we go for. That should not be our objective. To me, the most pungent phrase of this whole passage, these four verses, is that by Christ's death on the cross, by our union with him, being baptized, grafted into him, listen to this. I mean, the reason I wear long sleeve shirts is that the hair stands on end and I look like a gorilla when I read this. I get so excited. I get goosebumps. We are partakers of the divine nature of God. Amen. And I don't think we have but a small grasp of what that reality is. Having escaped the crisis, and when he says escape the corruption that is the world, it means that we don't face it day in and day out, but we no longer are victims of it. And that goes back to verse 2 where it says, that is how we experience God's grace and his peace, by being vitally connected, grafted into fused in as a partaker of the divine nature of God. In John chapter 15, Jesus makes that incredible. I, I encourage you to look at the first 15 verses that when you get home. I just lost my voice. There we go. Jesus says, I am the vine and you're the branches. If I'm a partaker of the divine nature of God, I am grafted into that vine and the same sap that makes Jesus who he is flows into us moment by moment as we walk with him. God, help us understand that. It's all rooted in being a part of the divine nature of God. That sets the bedrock for where the experience and the grace and peace comes as it is revealed in, in through our lives. Now then, let's look at the second part of this. Last week we talked about the confidence in the midst of crisis. And you and I face crisis every day of our lives. What's going on in Bosnia and Syria? Uh, we were on the phone, a uh, matter of fact, uh, late this afternoon, we're going to be meeting with a couple and she's going to Jordan and on, on Wednesday. She's going to be smack dab in the middle of crisis. She's going to see heartache. She's going to see every effect of sin there is. But even the people that she's dealing with beginning in two days doesn't hurt any worse than some of the things that you and I experience or have experienced 
or will experience in the future. Pain is pain. Satan's goal is to inflict pain. So let's not downplay because I'm not hurting as bad as somebody else or I'm not struggling with an area that somebody else... It doesn't mean that I'm not in some sort of a crisis. And what he's telling us here is the core of our confidence in facing crisis is that being grafted in to Jesus Christ, God, Father, God, Son, God, Holy Spirit. Now then, if we look at picking it up with verse 5, we begin to see the effect of that, the practical application. Last week, we talked about the theology. Now we're going to the practice. Last week, we talked about absolute truth. Today, we're going to talk about the application of that truth as it builds character into us as we face those everyday crises, regardless of what they are. We have to have that ground bed of being grafted into him. I've been spending, uh, last, yesterday I spent over two hours on the phone with a guy who's a professional athlete. His wife has left him. Th- two months ago when all this started, he was an absolute basket case. As I visited with him last week and as we spent hours almost every day together on the phone talking about this very truth, all of a sudden I see, I see no longer is his world rocked, which he told me when she told him that she had filed for divorce. He said, Bruce, it rocked my world. Now he is standing on a rock that will not be moved and how he's responding rather than reacting is actually supernatural. It's the effect of one who has grafted into the person of Christ. So we're in that transition now to say, okay, that's the truth, so how do we play this out? In verse five, it's for this very reason, going back to being a partaker of the divine nature of God, for this very reason, as a partaker of his divine nature, being grafted into him, we apply all diligence. This is the only time in the New Testament this word is used. It has to do with zeal. It has to do with an obsession to, to, to have as your driving purpose in life, to be preoccupied. Have be preoccupied with what's about to take place here. I don't know if any of you have seen this uh, doctoral thesis or not. It's called Crystal Magnates. And what it is, it's, it's a research paper that has been done on Urban Meyer and, and uh, Nick Saban, the two national championship football coaches. And he just talks about what is it that makes them the kinds of national champion winners that they are. And it was really intriguing. I thought as I read this, my goodness, I wish we as believers had that same mentality. It says that Urban Meyer will go to bed at night and his wife said it's so disturbing because in the middle of the night, he'll jump up in bed and he starts screaming out, plays X49, Z7, down and out. I mean, he's just constantly, his mind is just flooded. This is Urban Meyer. Nick Saban's crazy. The only reason why they beat Oklahoma is because they cheated. But Nick Saban, he sleeps with a nightstand beside his bed with a light that's on with a pad of paper. 
Throughout the night, he'll be spontaneously awakened to write out new plays, things that he's envisioning while he's sleeping. Can you imagine what would happen if we had that kind of zeal and that connectedness that we have with our Savior? That loved us so much that he is willing to go to the cross had you or I been the only person on the planet. To me, that deserves his attention. Amen. That's our motivation. Another thing I see in this passage is not just the motivation to make him a partaker first place in our lives, but also I see an interesting thing in the next part of this passage where it says, and applying all diligence in your faith, supply, and then he goes to litany, seven principles. When he says supply, the Greek word for that is to add. And when Peter was writing this, he had in mind something that was a practice in ancient Athens, Greece. Every year, the Athenians would have a festival and they would have a selected special conductor. This conductor would specifically enroll and enlist or invite different people to be a part of his chorus. He would add them to it. He was the conductor. He paid for all of their expenses. He was a representative of the nation. This conductor, and the word for add here is where we get the word for choreograph. As they sat under his leadership, he choreographed a dance or a chorus in harmony, all under the direction of the conductor. What he's saying here, as partakers of the divine nature of Christ, we arrange ourselves, we've been selected by God before the foundation of the world to be in his chorus, to sing under his direction. Every thought, every aspect of our life comes under his tutelage to have the kind of focus that every time the conduct, I, I love to go to the symphony and I watch the response. Uh, one of my greatest concerts of all time. I'm a big Ray Charles fan. Now there's, he has to be a believer. I, I mean, he just, if he gets, if you can go to heaven on works, he'll get there. <laughs> I've seen probably four concerts and to watch his orchestra and the vocal group respond that the least little movement, all their attention is upon him. This is what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature of God, to be that responsive to him. Every one of us in the quietness of our heart ought to be praying right now, Lord Jesus, make me responsive to the conductor. A few weeks ago, I checked into Magnolia Hotel over here at, um, across from SMU, and uh, you're no you fan. Who gets out of the car and comes walking to the lobby but Barry Switzer? And a number of years ago, I'd done a, a chapel for him, and my daughter was a cheerleader for him. And I walked up and said, hey, coach, how you doing? Oh, man, it's so good to see you. I mean, he acted like I was an old friend. He didn't have a clue who I was. <laughs> but it was really interesting. Next morning, I saw him as he's reading the paper in the dining area. And I said, coach, what is it that made you so great? He said, Bruce... It wasn't me. It was the players who arranged themselves together. It's the players. But you know what? They had a masterful coach, a motivator, 
And I know a lot of the players that would die for that man today because of the love he has for them. Why is it so easy to find those examples in our culture, our secular culture, but yet we struggle with it so much in our Christian walk? Okay, we've got about 20 minutes to hit seven points. You ready to strap it on and move? The first one is moral excellence. Moral excellence. He's listing seven qualities here of the Christian character. By the way, these are not ideals we shoot for. These things he mentions are those which should characterize our lives as one who's grafted into the divine nature of God. It's in the context of crisis. And when Peter was writing this, he was facing crisis. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, or 3, he says, don't be surprised about the fiery ordeal around us. We are living in constant conflict. We live in a world that's very conflicted. We had a prof in a seminary by the name of Haddon Robinson, and he defined the world like this. And this is a world that is really taking over. The world is a system controlled by Satan, working through degenerate men who hate God. Does that sound pretty harsh? The world is a system working through degenerate men who hate God. Where Satan is working through degenerate men who hate God. This is a quality defined from Scripture. The word moral excellence, the morality here is virtue. It's consistent with the nature of God. It's consistent with why we're called to reflect his image. It's our purpose. It's our sense of purpose. If you would, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Ephesians. And I, there's a couple of these passages I'd really like for you to write down as we go along because I want you to use these when we get home. And I'll tell you about how that works when we look at our first objective. In Ephesians chapter 1, listen to this. Imagine for a second, somebody knocks on the door, they give you a telegram or something pops up on the screensaver and this is addressed personally to you, verse 2 of chapter 1. Grace and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every, who has blessed us you and me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Before we were ever born, before the world was ever created, he chose us and he predestined us to the adoption of sons through his son Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will. And look at the next phrase in verse 6 to the praise of his glory, which has to do with the word excellence. You cannot separate in the Greek language the word excellence without praise. Excellence is going to show itself. It's like someone who's breeded a racehorse for one purpose, and that is to win. He has called us for one purpose, and that is that our lives would be observable evidence of the one who is working out his life through us. In Genesis chapter 1, Verses around 26, 27, 28. It says, we are created in the image of God. For what reason? Does it not make sense to reflect that image? 
In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, every one of us are to be mimickers or mimers or imitators of God. And then you go down a couple of verses and it says that we might be that fragrant aroma. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that we are his handiwork, his craftsmanship, his detail, his precision created for good works. When you go to work tomorrow morning, you have to be the very best you can be because people are watching. And what we do, how we handle ourselves, our verbalization, it's a reflection of that of God himself. Now then, this is anything but casual. This is for real. This takes a specific intentional focus. So the objective when we look at moral excellence is to know or divine or clearly understand my purpose. I have no idea how many marriages I've done in the 40-some years I've been in the pastorate. I know that in every marriage counseling situation I found myself in, I asked the couple, what is, why did you get married in the first place? They scratched their head and say, frankly, I don't know. We were created as husbands and wives to reflect the very essence of God. As people look into our marriages, they ought to be able to say that's what God's like, of how we relate and show His grace, His forgiveness, His unconditional love. All that makes God who He is to be a reflection of that relationship between God Father, God Son, God Holy Spirit. So, when we think about the objective to know and define and clearly understand my purpose, that has to be intentional. And before you hit the crib tonight, here's what I'd like to consider you doing. Read a passage like Ephesians chapter 1, 2 through 6. And say, God, I pray that as I sleep tonight, you will reveal your purpose in my life from this passage. Let's pray right now. In the quietness of your own heart, let's get a foot up on it. I'd like for you to pray, God, I pray that you would allow me to know my purpose in reflecting who you are. That didn't hurt, did it? But we know this, if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us, and if he hears us, he'll grant those things which we've asked of him. Therefore, bingo, it's going to happen. But have the pad. If, Luce, if Nick Saban can do it, you can do it. The second one is knowledge. And we talked about this a lot last week. It's taking that moral excellence that we learn from being a partaker of the divine nature of God and it begins to affect how we view everything. The word is epigonoso. It's an active, relational, working knowledge, experiential understanding of practicing what we know to be true. It's not has little to do with facts. We begin with what we know to be truth. You do not have to be a seminary professor to get this. Love is patient. Love is kind. God, make that real in my life. I got that from your word. I want to experience your 
unconditional love, your kindness. Do you want to know I struggle with in 1 Corinthians 13? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. I've got a memory like an elephant. I have to work overtime on that one. But God, I pray that you would work in my heart that I would not take into account a wrong suffered. A passage you might write down there is First uh, Corinthians chapter two. If I'm using too much scripture, I'm sorry. I'm going to do it anyway. Look at verse ten through sixteen. This this will this will make your hair stand on end. Now he's speaking to believers here, people at Centennial. For to us at Centennial Church, God revealed his secret through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. As a partaker of the divine nature of God, we're in the position for God to reveal anything to us at any given moment that he thinks we're capable of handling. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of no one knows except the spirit of God. And then we look at verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know all things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The natural man doesn't have a clue what we're talking about. He cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually praised. But yet he who is spiritual, he who is a partaker of the divine nature of God, appraises all things, yet he is appraised by no man. In the last verse, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him, but we have as a partaker of the divine nature, the mind of Christ. And a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Number three, the objective is to consistently and intentionally seek God's wisdom through his word. Take it beyond the daily devotional. Take the passage out this Ephesians chapter 1, verses 2 through 6, say, I'm going to spend the next week meditating on it, and I'm going to suck everything out of that thing I possibly can through God's Holy Spirit. It's intentional. Self-control is the next one. It's not impulsive. It's having our minds set on the conductor and taking every cue from him. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, that we bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. For me, that seems very laborious at times. But once we focus on this, all of a sudden we become conscious of what God's thoughts are. Moral issues... Our imagination, our planning, our goals, our decision making, all under his authority, under the direction of the director. 
The objective is to have all passions under the control of the divine nature through Holy Spirit. God created within me a consciousness of self-control. I'm sure running out of time, but we're going to push it. Perseverance. Hupomene is the Greek word. It means to put ourselves under continually. It's almost, how many have seen the Rocky movies? That, that's a, a very spiritual goal to have, is to see every Rocky movie. I'd like for us to create within ourselves the Rocky mentality when it comes to our faith. And I think about our high school kids and our college kids that are going to school and college. Uh, I, I met, what's, what, is it Annie or somebody that's going to UT next year? She may be going down there right now. You know, she's a missionary to the American Savage at the University of Texas. That's all there is to it. <laughs> For her to take and persevere moment by moment, not turn loose of that graftedness of being the partaker of the divine nature of God. I'd like to share with you a passage of scripture that I have shared with my children on more than one occasion. It's in Romans chapter 5. Make notation of it. It's one of those passages that you'll want to use for your objective. Romans chapter 5. And this is a passage I shared with my friend whose wife has pulled the rug out from under him. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace. We see those two words, grace and peace in which we stand when we were grafted in as a partaker of the divine nature of God. And not only this, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. For while we were yet helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. To realize that moment by moment, we have the sap of Christ himself flowing through our veins that regardless of the temptation, regardless of the rejection, regardless of our circumstances or crisis, we stand firm with perseverance. There's so much I'd like to add here. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I use this in a lot of athletic chapels. I do. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the conductor to direct us through the sour notes that someone next to us may have just hit. Perseverance. The objective is to resolve that as a partaker of the divine nature that I stay focused on him in the midst of crisis. And that is a choice. Godliness. 
It's an attitude of continual worship. And I used to think, well, that's ridiculous. How in the world are you going to be in continual worship when you're in the middle of a big business deal or in the middle of a high-powered basketball game, whatever it is? You know what? It is possible. Do you know why? He's never asked us to do anything that isn't possible. But as we begin to continually understand and begin to implement and begin to see the fused life, everything we do is in respect. August the 18th, 54, 54 years ago, I married Linda. She was 12 years old at the time. <laughs> and she's had a lot of Botox since. The minute I was, became one flesh with her is an awful lot like salvation. The minute I was became one flesh with her, when I was grafted into her, when I was baptized into her, every decision I made from that point on was different because it was as one who was grafted in to the other. That's what godliness is. To allow every decision we make, it has to do with choices. Would you turn to 1 Peter? There's so many passages. There's actually at least seven sermons in what I'm giving you right now. In 1 Peter... Chapter 1, 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, expecting the fact that there's going to be crisis, conflict, those fiery ordeals, therefore, gird your minds for action, keep sober in the Spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which you are yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Any volunteers for that? Anybody want to stand up and say, I'm holy? That's tough, isn't it? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that you, at the moment of spiritual birth, became the very righteousness of Christ. One of the last sermons, one of the greatest teachers of all time, Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost, stood in my pulpit, and I'll never forget the words he said, by our relationship with Christ, by being a partaker of the divine nature, you are as ready for heaven as you'll ever be. Isn't that great? If is it God's will that we be holy? Let me ask you a question. How should that affect our prayer life? Does God want my children to be holy or like Michael Jordan? Not that Michael Jordan isn't holy. I don't know anything about his spiritual life. But we spend more effort and time praying for our children to become the next Michael Jordan than to become a partaker of the divine nature of God and to be a reflection of the holiness of God. To moment by moment cultivate a lifestyle reflective of the holiness of God. Now then, the first two, these first five that we've mentioned, we're going to wrap it up quickly. 
The first five that we mentioned have to do with the greatest personal need we have in order to experience the grace and peace of Jesus Christ to avoid the corruption that is in the world by lust and demonstrate being a partaker of the divine nature of God. These last two focus on the highest needs of others. The first one is brotherly kindness. The word there is not the word agape, which is used in the last point, love. It's kindness, which is where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of love. And you remember when Jesus, for the sake of time, and you might want to write this down in Matthew chapter 9 around verse 35. I'm going to paraphrase it for the sake of time. Jesus was walking into the mall. And he looked about and he didn't see what he was going to buy, wanted to buy. Do you know what Jesus saw? He saw people wandering about aimlessly as sheep without a shepherd. And he felt compassion on them. Here's an assignment. Next time you go to the Galleria, ask God to give you the ability to recognize the needs of the people who are there. When you go home today, I don't care if the person next to you has a five-car garage with a Mercedes, with an Aston Martin, with a Tesla. They have 12,000 square feet. They have everything... I believe with all my heart that stuff doesn't fill that God-shaped vacuum that Pascal talked about that could be filled with only one thing, and that was the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. To have the kind of relationship with people that we're able to recognize the kinds of needs that they have and meet them on that particular level at any given moment. The objective is to pray for and cultivate a heart of compassion the same compassion that Christ had. And the last one is the word love. That is the agape love. This is a sacrificial love. I'd like for you to think a moment, just a second, of one person you just don't like. Just one. <laughs> Did you hear her? Just one? The one we would just, if we saw them coming down the street, we wouldn't have anything to do with them. The agape love is that intrinsic catalyst that creates within us a love for the person who has hurt us very bad. There was a time a while back where I felt a tremendous sense of betrayal and rejection and uh, it was one of the, probably one of the hardest times of my life and I wrestled with that and I wrestled with it and I wrestled with it and I thought this isn't a reflection at all of what I'm supposed to be feeling. Do you know what I had to do? I had to pull out my journal and I had to write a, out a prayer of forgiveness for every one of those persons that hurt me deeply. That's why Jesus went to the cross and there's some of us here today who have family members we can't stand. With good reason. But not an excuse. Do you see the difference? We have reasons that we have been offended. But no excuses not to forgive. If there's any encouragement in Christ, 
if there's any consolation of love, if there's any compassion, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Do nothing for selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let, get this, each of you regard the other as more important than yourself. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, even a bondservant to the point of death. That is the Christ that we have been grafted into. It's the sap of Christ that flows through our veins that gives us the capacity to forgive. The objective, to choose to empty self and be filled with the divine nature of God and as a servant and with sacrifice. These seven qualities are absolutely impossible from a human perspective. That's what makes the church so unique. If there's someone here this morning that says, I'm not there. If you want to experience the grace and peace to be able to no longer be controlled by the culture, but to allow those seven qualities to be reflected in your life, it begins at the root of being grafted into and a partaker of the divine nature. And if you've never done that before, I invite you to pray silently with me as I pray out loud. A prayer of connectedness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. I want to receive that forgiveness and I ask you to make me a partaker of your divine nature. And I pray, Father, that as a result of that, you will build into me those character qualities that stand in the midst of crisis. If you prayed that prayer, you can rest assured that you are now the partaker of the divine nature of God. This church is about feeding that, growing it, nurturing it. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what you allow us to experience as a result of your grace. For it's in Christ's name we pray.